Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias. On the first half of this episode pairing, we looked at the Wachowski siblings' groundbreaking 1999 science fiction story, The Matrix. In this half, we'll talk about the weird conceptual sandwich that links it with Ghost in the Shell, the embattled new cyberpunk thriller starring Scarlett Johansson as Major, an android with a human brain stolen from an unwilling victim and reprogrammed to make her the perfect soldier. In the film, Major questions her humanity and whether she has a soul, and she gets a push from a terrorist named Kuze, played by Michael Pitt, who has a series of connections with her that she doesn't anticipate. Like The Matrix, Ghost in the Shell is a visually complicated film that's meant to be groundbreaking and meant to touch on big, earth-shaking ideas about who we are and where identity springs from. In practice, hmm, we'll see if we can reconcile this movie's ghost with its shell. You are the first of your kind, but you're not invulnerable. Maybe next time you can design me better. Everyone around me, they feel connected to something. Connected to something I'm not. Everything they told you was a lie. Who are you? They did not save your life. They stole it. All right. So how much of, of the controversy around Ghost in the Shell did you guys follow? There's the, there's this narrative uh, that was pushed by one of the producers of the film that, that the controversy soured critics on the movie and then critics soured filmgoers in the movie. And there was kind of a big tail wagging the dog kind of situation. But did you guys follow it closely? And, and do you think it actually affected how you feel about the film? I don't know if you know about this, but I work in uh, media. Oh, really? covering uh, pop culture so it's kind of hard to avoid yeah i mean i followed it you know my thinking was it's a legitimate a very legitimate concern that deserves a lot of discussion but i was going to try to like just sort of compartmentalize that when i watched the movie and that's the attitude i went into watching this as to whether or not that alone sour critics i can't be alone and like trying to at least not make that the entirety of the discussion of the film and trying to judge it on other aspects of it. So I'm, I'm assuming other critics did that as well. Although, I mean, I didn't review this. So I'm using critic in the sense that I, I do write and talk about movies, but not this one in particular until now. Yeah, I'm with you on the compartmentalizing thing because I, I was also aware of the controversy because I also work in media covering <laughs> Wait, pop <what>? culture. <laughs> Wait, how many of us here work in media? Yeah. But I like Scarlett Johansson. So I was very kind of torn between like acknowledging that this is 
probably a very big misstep on the film's part, but also kind of wanting to see if Scarlett Johansson is any good and, and wanting to see a good movie with her in it. So like, I feel pretty confident saying like it didn't sour me on the movie before going in. What soured me on the movie is how freaking boring it was. <laughs> <laughs> like, see, I was I was holding my cards close to my chest here. Uh, uh, go ahead. No, no, that's all I have to say. I was super bored, super bored by this movie. And I don't think having an Asian actor playing the lead would have changed that. Other things would have changed that, but not can we, that. Can we put our finger on why? Because I had the same reaction. And the entire time I was having a hard time connecting with the movie, I was thinking, this should be up my alley. It's it's future science fiction. It takes place in this like very visually distinctive world. There's a lot of action. There's a female hero who's trying to like escape the white male supremacist uh, jerk who put her in the position she's in. She does it by like bonding with another woman. I like there are all of these things that should be touchstones for me. And I I literally nodded off early in the mm-hmm. film. I did, too. <laughs> I felt like Scott after a thing of nachos. Believe it or not, I was I was totally awake. Because <laughs> like, you didn't eat any It was nachos? like a huge Twitter discussion about whether whether it was going to be a good idea for me to drink a craft beer while, uh, <laughs> while I was seeing the late show. And I actually did stay awake. To go back to the whole controversy thing, because I didn't weigh in, that is one thing I, as a freelance uh, writer, have liberated myself from to <laughs> some degree, which is not to engage or engage only as much as I care to in whatever the big uh, culture controversy of the moment is. And so this is not one that I was, you know, again, I'm not looking down on people who are engaged in it. It just wasn't something I was uh, all that into. And I, and I also felt like having seen The Great Wall, um, I felt that film was very mistreated by culture writers based on i think promotional materials and not on the much more complex and more interesting thing that happened in that you're, you're taking case. on the, the sort of the idea of, of the white hero is sort of put under a microscope in that in that film and in some really interesting ways the great wall right? the great the great yeah. wall i mean there's a lot of there the culture there's a cultural exchange going on there it's, it's a whole nother topic for a whole nother day but uh, there's a cultural exchange going on in the great wall between two movie making nations in which the dominant part of that conversation is is Chinese, not American. But anyway, you know, I was compartmentalizing as I usually did. And I think I was with everybody else finding it uh, pretty dull. And I think there's a thing with Ghost in the Shell where distinctive is the word that you use, Tasha. And I, that's the one thing this film is not for me. Uh, there's nothing really distinctive about this world. It feels patched together from other sources. I, I don't really feel like I was witnessing the vision of a, an extraordinary artist in Rupert Sanders. Mm. It just it all felt like it was uh, a lot of borrowed parts that were sort of put together in a shell-like fashion. I'll differ from you there a little bit, Scott. I actually, I wouldn't find that this movie was a little duller, to be honest, because I thought the production design of this movie was really impressive. I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of, it's very indebted to Blade Runner, but in a way that it's beautiful. And I, I would have watched two hours of characters just kind of skyline shots mm-hmm. and that Clint Manziel score, he co-wrote it with somebody, I'm not sure who, and just characters wandering around this sort of dingy, sort of cyberpunky, neon, hologram-filled future city. I feel like I'm borrowing someone else's observation about a different movie. But there's like so much more thought 
put into the details of the background, like what's being advertised and when it's being advertised and, and what the images are than any other aspect of the movie. Like the design of this movie is so much smarter and more interesting than the movie it's supporting. I, it kind of makes me feel sad for, for all the artists who worked really hard and did a great job in service of a vehicle that wasn't worthy of their talents. Yeah, when I say distinctive, I really am thinking about those exterior visuals of this world that has become completely dominated by hologram advertising. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to me that when Minority Report came out, so much of the cultural conversation revolved around the future of advertising, like how oppressive and invasive it was, uh, how visually beautiful it was, how believable it was as like, this is where we would end up. And I had the same reaction to the skylines with these, uh, you know, giant building sized people hawking various exercise equipment and soft drinks. I like I can see us being in that future. But all of that felt more real to me than Major did as a character. Put me on uh, team Keith and Tasha as far as the city visuals Mm. being what what really stuck out to me. It actually reminded me, Scott, this probably won't mean anything to you, but the Warren Ellis comic Transmetropolitan, which also takes place in kind of a cyberpunk future, and the art in that, I remember, it's been a long time since I read Transmet, and I fell off of it because it got kind of ridiculous, but in the early going when I was really enjoying it, I was always so captivated by the cityscapes and like the detail and how much information was being portrayed in the illustrations of the city that he was in, and that background often being more interesting than what was happening with the character. It reminded me of an anime movie called Macross Plus, which also used those kinds of translucent, gigantic uh, exterior holograms, uh, in this case, to present concert performances uh, and just sort of that visual. I, like, I, There's something very aesthetically pleasing and interesting, I think, about the solidity of a city and then having it bedecked with these sort of uh, light visions. And you see things like that, like in uh, Miyazaki's Pompoko, when the uh, Tanuki are having their strange ghostly parade through the city. You see some of it in uh, Spirited Away, too. I think there's just a, there's an interesting thing there that works with the Japanese aesthetic where you have the very strong contrast between these like dead mechanical physical things and these spirit things of light. It's almost like some sort of ghost in some sort of shell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess there's an element of whimsy here to the design that's a little different from Blade Runner, right? Um, yeah. Um, in color. But at the same time, I mean, the idea of, of these, these uh, moving advertisements that's Blade Runner, right? And also a vaguely defined future culture that that is Asian-esque. That's also Blade Runner, too. So um, maybe I just felt like the connection was maybe a little too close between those two films in terms of the look. But I think um, there are more Asian characters in Blade Runner, at least, at least in the background. Than <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, no, that's, yeah. I mean, Ghost in the Shell has some Asian people filling don't, out don't, its supported don't, cast. Don't step on my, don't, don't step on my <laughs> easy joke. No, it's got Pete Takeshi on it. Yeah. Pete Takeshi yeah. on it, which is, which is who I love to see in a movie and it was cool to see him in an American film and and also like refusing to try to speak English he's earned the right to uh, just speak in whatever language he wants to he's beat Takeshi and I mean it makes for a weird detail in the movie and that he speaks Japanese and everybody understands him but nobody else speaks Japanese not even back to him Mm -hmm. it maybe gives the film a little more texture it's certainly better than him trying to stumble through English or maybe than them trying to stumble through subtitled Japanese but it is still kind of a strange detail I, I just figure everyone has had some sort of cybernetic procedure that allows them to translate whatever language they they are hearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, that just kind of speaks to what we were saying about wanting to know more about this world and less about this 
stupid story and boring characters that are happening in it. And I love Scarlett Johansson, but when, when she's not engaged in something, mm-hmm. when she's kind of checked out, she can be really boring. Yeah, and, and she is I checked think, out in this. She, yeah. she tried to drop out of it, I believe. Did she? She seems like a non-presence uh, in this. I think it, it really is a matter, though, of um, when we talk about The Matrix, I talked about how um, it works so well because beyond the opening, it reveals the world of the film through this character and you get this this great introduction to to, to it you get a sense of what life is like and, and you never get that in Ghost of the Shell you never really get a sense following her how this world came to be what it's like to, to be a citizen in this just there's no well, kind of do but you get it in prelude like you get it in like on-screen text in right. the beginning which is so much less interesting than having it unfold for you the way it does in the matrix and like there, there's not that sense of discovery mm-hmm. that there is in the matrix of oh this is how the world works it's like you're just being told this and is how Discovery, this discovery in the film is internal and not not external. It's, the discovery is about her finding out more about her past and about who she is, and that's just. Way, I'm sorry, it's just way less interesting mm-hmm. uh, than this world that we've never ever seen before. I mean, I agree. I, I do think that one of the major problems. Which is sort of a joke, given that the character is the major, is with Scarlett Johansson's performance. I don't know that I felt she was checked out so much as I felt she was trying to play this character. But this character is a very abstracted character who seems, for the most part, fairly divorced from her own emotions and her own situation. I mean, there should be an immense and painful decision going on here, which is am I still human? Do I want to be human? What does it mean to be human? Do I have a soul? Did I have a soul once and it was taken away from me? Who am I? And that all just seems to sort of play out with her wandering around blank faced. Like some of that is the performance, but some of it's also the script. And to be frank, it's a problem that I had with uh, the original 1995 one too. Mm. I always felt that that character was too abstract and heady and philosophical and not actually in the moment of anything that she was doing. Would you mind talking a little bit about the original anime? Because I haven't seen it, and we we toyed with the idea of pairing it with this for our classic film, but decided not to. But I think I would like to hear a little bit about how this fits into its legacy. Well, one of the reasons we decided not to was because I kind of pushed against it pretty hard. Because in the era when it came out, I was fascinated with all things anime. The first movies were just starting to make it to American screens, and anime was just starting to be something that you could get you know, as films were meant to be seen, as opposed to in VHS tapes that were being passed from person to person and that often you had to like sit and watch with a printout of the translation of the the words like sitting in front of you. Like that was a period where it was a really a great time for anime coming to America. Where Virgin was again into back in my day. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry, Tasha, didn't mean to interrupt you. But when I saw this film, I just I felt so detached from it and what it was trying to do. And because for me, the director, uh, Momoro Oshi, who consulted here and actually gave this film his seal of approval, said it was doing things really, really well, has always been a director who likes these big philosophical abstract questions and who directs these films with long, languorous pauses in them, sometimes taking other franchises uh, like the Pat Labor franchise. And I think he did a, those annoying Aliens movie, if I remember correctly. He would take these franchises that in 
some ways were very mechanical or very manic and turn them into these like slow, thoughtful explorations of, of philosophy and being. And that's what the original Ghost in the Shell was. But in the end of the original Ghost in the Shell, Motoko makes the conscious decision to abandon her body and upload herself into the gestalt entity that is the puppet master. And it becomes this story about the singularity. It becomes this story about how profoundly different machine intelligence is. And here, when we kind of have the, do you want to come take the next step of evolution with me? And she's like, nah, I'd rather beat things up. It really seems like... I don't know if Blade Runner ended with uh, Deckard falling over dead because he's a replicant and he's hit his his end. Just like, met, we're, we're kind of done with that whole plot at the end. It just seemed very abrupt and not very in keeping with the, the philosophy of the film to me at all. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't realize that the ending was that different from, from the original. And it makes me wonder if this one was formulated with the expectation that it would have a bunch of sequels. I mean, I know the original Every, Ghost in the Shell had sequels. Yeah, I, I mean, I know the, the anime had some sequels. Well, it had too. a sequel and it had, uh, there were spin-off, there was a spinoff TV show that right. ran a couple seasons. Yeah. But I mean, this ending, the way you describe it in comparison to the anime, it just sounds like they're leaving the door open for many movies in which Major kicks ass, you know, rather than uploading herself to the cloud. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like a sort of wearying outgrowth of the everything has to be a franchise or at least has to be set up to be open for a franchise mentality. And one of the things that I think we get here that's sort of a result of that is and also one of the reasons the film is so boring is that she's surrounded by characters who we really know nothing about, mm -hmm. like her second command, Bateau, who gets his eyes replaced. Who is he? We have no idea. Yeah. He's, he's I, I only knew that he was who he was because I had edited an article on the original Ghost in the Shell before seeing it. Otherwise, like the movie told me nothing. This guy's jacked, though. <laughs> <laughs> he's jacked and he has uh, a basset hound, which is uh, mm. an Oshi trademark. That mm. Oshi is a big lover of basset hounds. So they become more and more prominent throughout his movies as he became more and more famous and got more and more uh, like leeway to do what he wanted. If you look at the posters for Ghost in the Shell, that basset hound is all over them. Or Ghost in the Shell 2, Innocence. It was all about the basset hound. So when it showed up in Ghost in the Shell, I had uh, the live action one. I had my one little moment of, yeah. I, I like now I want to know more about the dog. We're never going to return to him or the character again. That was my favorite part too, but not because it had anything to do with Ghost <laughs> in the Shell, just because I like Basset Hounds. <laughs> yeah, there's just there's a diffusion to this movie where it feels like all of the ideas are only executed in conversation and not really carried out through the story. And only those ideas are important to the movie which means nothing else in the movie is integrated into it. Like, I liked Michael Pitt's performance. And I liked I the conception of yeah. him as a character. And also, like, I guess to praise an element of this movie's casting that has kind of been universally criticized is, like, I actually think casting Michael Pitt as, like, an earlier version of Scarlett Johansson just, like, works from a visual level. Like, I didn't I didn't realize until, like, the scene that I'm I'm like, oh, they totally work as, like, two different models of the same system. I can see that. Yeah. Although, I, and I like Juliet Pinochet. No one's really said that. I mean, that was the one yeah. performance of the film that really stood out for me as, or at least one character that stood out for me as having some complexity, some mixed emotions, um, who behaved in ways that were expected but not nonsensical. And uh, it's Julia Binoche, so she brings a certain amount of uh, gravitas to the occasion that is almost more than the film deserves, or is more than the film deserves. No, I, I utterly agree with you on that. The scene where a major shows up to confront her in her 
strange Kubrickian like <laughs> arc padded arc of a home whatever that space is mm-hmm. her floor wall bed <laughs> like why do you like sleep on the wall sometimes <laughs> uh, that but that scene uh, Juliette Binoche's like clear terror in that scene was the most convincing moment in the movie for me uh, because it was one of the few places where we felt a real emotion this is between this and Godzilla. She's the go-to person for tragic scientist characters in, in American blockbusters. Yeah, she she gets a whole lot more screen time in this than Godzilla. She's wiped out pretty fast. And I also wonder about that scene in Clouds of Sil Maria where Juliette Binoche and Kristen Stewart go to the movies together while they're watching the movie in 3D that they're clearly bored by. And Juliette Binoche kind of like brings her uh, 3D glasses to the bridge of her nose and back again. And just going to look at the screen in a different way and uh, it feels like that is her reaction or pre-reaction to uh, seeing herself in Ghost in the Shell. Did anyone see this in uh, 3D, by the way? No. Because I thought that those cityscapes probably lent themselves pretty well to 3D. I did. It was yeah. it was very good 3D. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I did. Was it, was it designed to be 3D? I don't know. I don't know. But it, was, it was the kind of thing where I was actually glad I was watching yeah, it. Yeah, I, I bet. I bet. Maybe that's maybe that helped the world of the film come to life a little bit more for you than it did. did yeah. Right? I saw it on a very big screen. And, and the other seven people I saw it with <laughs> <laughs> saw it on a big screen as well. Yeah. Well, we could talk a good uh, bit about the actual philosophy in this movie, but that is the thing that it most has in common with The Matrix. So I think this is a good point to wrap up the conversation about Ghost in the Shell individually. And then we'll be back after this break to talk about that movie and The Matrix and what they have in common. That's good. Do you remember anything about the attack? What? It was an attack, terrorists. Why can't I feel my body? Miara, your body was damaged. We couldn't see it. We made you a new body. But your mind, your soul, your ghost, it's still in there. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all of the things they have in common. I promised in the intro that we were going to discuss the weird conceptual sandwich (laughs) of Ghost in the Shell and The Matrix. And what I meant by that was when the Wachowskis were pitching The Matrix to film executives when they were trying to get it sold, they actually took Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 anime, around and showed it to people and said, this is what we want to achieve. This is what we want to accomplish. Um, They were talking both about the, the philosophy of the movie and about the execution of like a cyberpunk future. They, they, were, they said, we want to do this in live action. So some of the things that we think of as touchstones in the Matrix, like the computer characters raining down screens and those the really stark color patterns of old CRT screens, that is actually taken directly from uh, the original Ghost in the Shell. So then when the new live action Ghost in the Shell came along, uh, it picks up all of these images, the idea of giant cords plugging to the back of people's necks and the reigning characters um, and various other things that look very, very matrixy. But those are actually from the original Ghost in the Shell by way of the Matrix. They're all of these images that we're more familiar with from the thing that was inspired by the movie that is getting remade here. It all blends together in a big weird blur. So how much of those things, and I'm asking because cyberpunk is not something I'm super well versed in, but how much of those kind of things are specific to the movie versus just cyberpunk as a genre? 
You know, I don't know where like the first thing to use people actually plugging cords into their their heads or their necks comes from. I kind of wonder if it's Neuromancer or something even earlier than that. Certainly, it's Neuromancer that popularized that. I think I think it's Neuromancer is sort of if it's not the first, it's certainly the first that people think of. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of coming off as the cyberpunk expert, I'm not, but I I, I think, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure that is the source. There are a lot of things here that are like the the idea of the grim and gritty future where the machines have kind of taken over. Like that's a very cyberpunk kind of theme. The idea of people who are closer to machines in some ways than they are to people is a fairly cyberpunk idea. The idea of uh, the the AI that has achieved sentience, I think, is a very important cyberpunk idea, even if uh, it's not necessarily an evil AI or something that's taken over the world. But uh, is there anything in particular you're thinking of? Plugging a cable into a person is the, the main thing, because that is such a memorable part of the Matrix that I suspect it probably did not originate there. Though. It's also, I mean, getting back to alien and the rape metaphor, the idea of like plugging a physical object into a hole in yourself is is a very deliberately sexual image. Mm-hmm. It's And it's meant to be an unpleasant sexual image. It's about invasion. It's about loss of body autonomy and making a machine like literally part of your body. And I think one of the reasons that that's endured as a cyberpunk element is because it gets into body horror again. Mm-hmm. On the other side of that, there's a kind of a fantasy element as well with something like Ghost of the Shell, where everybody has some sort of cybernetic enhancement that humans are now customizable. Uh, Cybernetic lever so you can drink forever. That's so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But but the idea is not a bad one. I mean, you know, it's one thing if some insidious entity or, or company or machine is making these determinations for you, but if you are the one choosing to marry yourself with uh, a machine in some way. There's something there's something through that. Make yourself a better, more enhanced human being. And I mean, we see that in The Matrix with I know Kung Fu. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it really, it is a fantasy of, you know, instant expertise. You meld yourself with the machine and you instantly become the best at something, uh, you know, without effort, without concentration. It's well, an instant upgrade. And I think also part of why it's effective it was effective in 1999. It's effective now. Is that we we are willingly giving ourselves over to machines quite a bit uh, now, more than ever. Uh, I mean, a much better Scarlett Johansson film about about that is is her, of course, another movie about the singularity in some ways. But I mean, you know, just just by virtue of of, of our phones and, and Google Glass may have been a, <laughs> may have been a flop, but mm-hmm. you know, something's going to come along that's going to be the equivalent of that in the future. And and uh, you know, cyberpunk is looking uh, closer than ever at that point. So one thing that anime has always had an obsession with, and I I think Japanese pop culture in a large degree too, although I have less exposure. Like I've read Japanese novels. I've seen Japanese movies that are built around this idea, but I've watched a lot more anime and it, it, it keeps coming back to this idea is the the constant and ongoing question of how does technology change us as a species? Mm. Like who are we if we are allow ourselves to be subsumed into the machine? And Japan being a more technologically advanced country, I think has been obsessed with this question since not long after World War II. So, I mean, that comes up a lot as, as part 
part of the core of Ghost in the Shell. And I think the Matrix's question about that is Japanese inspired. But you really have two different stories here. They're, they're both grappling with like, who are we? What does technology mean to us? Are we real or inside or outside the machine? How, how do you see those comparing in these two films? Um, badly in terms of Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, you know, what's going on in the Matrix, I think it's very sophisticated and it works as, as a mainstream blockbuster film, but you can go deep with the Matrix. But I mean, Ghost in the Shell, I mean, my memory is already fading, but it's, I just remember literally characters saying, you know, am I human now or am I a machine? <laughs> am I some kind of ghost in a shell? My memory, again, my memory may be a little off on that. It's, but, it's uh, not very pretty far. Close. No, isn't, it, isn't that actually a reference in a line of dialogue? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yes. the, the actual, the literalization of ghost and shell in the live action version is as wearisome to me as the Goodnight Moon reading. Mm. I'm pretty sure there are at least three different points in the movie where somebody says some equivalent of, this isn't your ghost, it's your shell. Did you get the metaphor? If not, we can say it again slower. (laughs) But it does provide uh, critics writing about this film with a handy way to describe (laughs) a film whose shell is very nice looking but lacks a ghost in that shell. Can someone explain this? Uh, this is maybe off topic, but can you someone explain the scene to me? Is it as obvious that I think it is when she goes and picks up the prostitute and just kind of touches her face as if trying to figure out what humanity was? And is there more going on in that scene than just that? That was one of the oh, things I, I very clearly that. slept through. I think you're right about that. Well, that really says something about this movie. About the, I mean, we really are having trouble recalling it, and this is supposed to be some mind blowing, futuristic vision. Super trippy. Right. I mean, how? why would something this uh, this big and flashy be so hard to remember? Scott, you and I watched Blade Runner on the big screen. It was glorious. And, you know, we watched The Matrix in, in close proximity to this. And I think with both of those, you, you have a sense of what this world is, maybe how it happened. Like there's dots to connect between our world and, and this world of the future. And, and you can kind of see our world going awry and turning into this. There's a very distinct dystopia in, in, in those movies. And, and, and this, I, I, it was just sort of, to me, it just felt like a dystopia assembly kit. You know? You just, you know, there was no real underlying metaphor there beyond the whole, can machines be humans? Question mark, question mark, question mark. It just felt very forced. Was that anyone else's yeah, reaction? No, like I didn't, I don't want to say I didn't see the bad side of this dystopia because, you know, I'm not like rushing out to replace my eyes with cybernetic eyes, but also like there was no element of danger I really felt in this dystopia world. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like part of that is just like you said, we don't really have a sense of history or how we got to this place. And outside of Matrix conflict, like it's really kind of hard to see how this world impacts anyone else living in this world either positive or negatively well there doesn't there's just not much of a sense of any larger world outside this little unit of people and that becomes very strange because we're sort of getting an idea of crimes against humanity and we don't know what humanity is who humanity is like what is an ordinary person in this world like? And that is something that the original Ghost in the Shell, it didn't focus on directly, but there was a lot of scene setting where you just kind of see the city from a ground level and, and people moving around in it. And you get a real sense for there is an entire world operating that has no idea of these like heady, strange battles that are being fought over the ability to infect and rewrite other people's brains. Like this literally is something that does not 
affect the person on the street. And that's just it's sort of an interesting sense. Whereas here, you, it, it feels like a hollow city. It feels like nobody else lives in it but our characters. Yeah. And to contrast with The Matrix, which actually like kind of uses the specifics of its world to almost justify all the collateral damage of, of that happens in the movie in terms of like, th- there's one line of dialogue. I can't remember exactly what it is, but where I believe it's Morpheus says to Neo, like, you know, don't worry about harming people in The Matrix. Like, they're all part of the system that you're fighting against there's the insinuation that they're already dead or they're they're not real people which is weird because if you die in the matrix you die so yeah the the line is actually something along the lines of you know they're not bad people but until they're until they get woke essentially (laughs) uh, to use a contemporary terminology that they're not they're not on your side yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's that's one step towards uh, reclaiming uh, the red pill thing. Is yeah. you, you got to get woke, or you're not you're not actually yeah. real. I mean, it also is kind of a terrorist ideology. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mean, there there is certainly a lens through which you can view the main characters in the Matrix as terrorists. Well, I don't think it's hard to do that at yeah. all. It's part of what makes the film a little unnerving. Yeah. One of the things I always liked about the Lady in Red sequence in the Matrix is just that feeling of. You know, it's a reminder that there are other people in this world, that it's not just about this tiny knot of people. Maybe this tiny knot of people are the only people that are relevant, but the film shows you that this world is a populated world full of people going through their daily lives, unaware of what's going on. And I mean, that can be a very terroristic idea. You know, oh, by the way, here are the background people whose lives don't matter. Or you can go into John Wick territory and suddenly you realize that literally everybody in the world seems to be actively a part of the system and is against you. All homeless people are actually assassins. That's what I take away from John Wick, too. <laughs> and you need to shoot them in the head as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the zombie apocalypse fantasy. You know, it is a wish fulfillment fantasy because in the zombie apocalypse, there are a couple of people who are still alive and who matter to you, and literally everybody else can be killed if they get in your way. <laughs> and then yep. there was there was a sad and resounding silence. One of the things that uh, I see as a connection between these two films that I think is interesting is both of them are specifically about there is a force that steals people's bodies. That in The Matrix, it's the AIs that have people contained in these weird little pink bubbles. In Ghost in the Shell, there are people who are snatching people off the street and removing their brains and sticking them into androids. But in both cases, there's kind of this idea of your body has been stolen from you and it's not your own. And you have to declare an identity for yourself that's much more based on you know your emotions, your feelings, and your self-identity. How do you guys see that playing out as a comparison between the two? Well, I think that it allows both movies to explore to different ends and different effects how we construct our sense of self separate from our body. And we kind of got into that in the first half of this discussion, talking about the Wachowskis and like viewing it through a trans lens and everything. But what struck me watching these movies back to back is that they both comment, not too deeply, but they both do comment on the role of memory in the sense of self. And in the case of The Matrix, it's a world where Neos and basically anyone else who is freed, all their memories are false. And they have to reconcile their vision of self with memories that they now know aren't real, you know, real and with a capital R. And in Ghost in the Shell, I mean, it deals with that 
much more directly. There's a line that Julia Binoche says about, like, I can't remember the exact line because it probably wasn't very good, but something to the effect <laughs> of, like, your ghost isn't your memories, it's your soul, you know, like, there's, like, a dividing line there. And and obviously that is a plot element in Ghosts in the Shell. Like, there's they're specifically not wanting Major to be able to access those memories, and they are cutting her off from them. And the implication is from her humanity. And she, I guess, regains humanity or her ghost or whatever that, you know, X factor is when she does reclaim those memories. So the two films are working to different ends, but they are both still playing with that. And maybe I was just, I had it on my mind because Carrie Ann Moss reminded me of Memento. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think both films deal with a future in which humans are in a contradictory state of being in which they're both enslaved and not wholly themselves and and where that same condition offers up possibilities for transformation and, and for freedom and for doing things that you would never in your organic self be able to do before. There's also the degree to which both films kind of have the protagonist towards the end destroying the bodies they have. I mean, I guess Neo doesn't choose to get shot, but I mean, he goes through a death and transformation, whereas the major like actively chooses to tear apart her body in order to tear apart the tank and, and save Kuze. Both of them kind of have to step beyond even the fake physical body of the matrix. Uh, Neo kind of has to rise above and the major just kind of makes the conscious decision that's what what's important about her is her mind and the connection she's made with Kuze and not the the body that she shreds in the process of helping him. It's interesting because I'm hearing you talk about Neo and and major like kind of uh, sacrificing their bodies and then being resurrected and I'm like immediately wanting to like graft a western judeo-christian lens onto this but based on where both of these stories are coming from and having roots in eastern storytelling I'm not really sure that that is a connection. I think it's one for The Matrix. I think The Matrix is pretty uh, uh, openly uh, invites a, a Christian comparison with with that in particular and the whole idea of uh, the messianic figure. Yeah. Because in the show, I think it's a little less clear to me. Sure. Although the Wachowskis like strongly deny a Christian influence like in spite of in spite of the cross and the resurrection <laughs> in uh, the final Matrix movie. They don't movie. get to have a say. Yeah, but they've brought in the way like Hinduism and Buddhism and other religious uh, traditions like also have the theme of resurrection and transformation like it's given that religion is at heart us trying to explain where ourselves go after our bodies die I think there's a certain amount of obsession with revival and renewal and rebirth in every religion except Calvinism which is just <laughs> depressing <laughs> Oh, even Calvinism is about where you spend the afterlife. It's just, it's just been predetermined for you. <laughs> Fair enough. You just don't get to really choose the form of your rebirth. So uh, there are a lot of other connections between the films. You know, they both take place in these dark, tragic future dystopias. They both rely very heavily on like stylized martial arts inflected action scenes. They both have female heroines. Is there any other connection between these two movies that really resonates with you? Well, I think we already talked extensively about the style of both of these films, so I don't know that we need to go too deeply into it, but I do just kind of want to take this opportunity to point out how distinctive the Matrix's visual style still is, like even after it has been copied and parodied, frankly, uh, so many times. 
And Ghost in the Shell is beautiful, but also not especially distinctive. And I can't quite figure out where that divide is, like what makes The Matrix so much more memorable and distinctive than the similarly beautiful and nice looking, but not very memorable Ghost in the Shell. I think if you don't have a narrative that is compelling you to think about the film beyond what it looks like, the design elements tend to kind of slip away. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't really have anything to grasp onto. I don't think I don't think we remember them quite as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean you look at uh, some recent science fiction films like you know Oblivion or the remake of Tron. It's like these are absolutely beautiful worlds that have been immaculately designed. But do you remember anything? A single thing about? Them? I can barely remember the name of Oblivion. I get Oblivion I, and Elysium confused. So I, I even kind of like Oblivion. I think I thought it was a pretty okay. Sure, movie, but, but the look but, is yeah. it looks incredible. Yes. But if you don't if you don't populate it with something of substance, then it just it all sort of. Uh, floats away well before we all float away ourselves i'm just going to point out that you can find both the original ghost in the shell and the matrix on dvd blu-ray and streaming services uh the live action ghost in the shell might still be in a theater near you (laughs) it depends on how quickly it fades away from our collective consciousness and our collective theaters we'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment your next picture show it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I'm going to do a Tasha here and recommend eight different articles. No, I'm going to to just recommend two films very quickly. Uh, One, I am going to jack Tasha's style in that I'm going to recommend a piece of anime. Uh, which is called Your Name. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, from, yeah. from Mikado Shinkai, who who I had never seen any of his films before. He's a rising star in anime. And it is a, uh, well, it's a gorgeous looking film about two teens who swap bodies. And it's sort of a wacky premise that gets a, and there's comedy in it, but it moves towards a fairly non-wacky, I even kind of refer to it as kind of an X-Files-ish story about, you know, sort of this, sort of this cosmic mystery. But it's really about two characters who don't know each other but make connections in a really interesting um, way. I, did you see it, Genevieve? No, Genevieve? I'm really – yeah. it's playing at the music box and I'm very looking forward to it. I wish I'd it. seen it on the big screen because it is a gorgeous-looking film even on a screener. The other one is sort of a follow-up to a companion piece to what we've been talking about, which is in, in 1999, there were basically three films that kind of worked some of the same ideas. Uh, that was The Matrix, 13th Floor, which which is I'm really <laughs> fine. And then, and then there's the David Cronenberg uh, film Existence, which came out, uh, I think, before yeah. any of them. And it's kind of like the graduate seminar version of The Matrix. Um, yeah. I like it a lot. Jennifer Jason Lee is this, is this game designer who designs these games that you have to plug into physically to play and enter this virtual reality world. And, and it's this very Cronenbergian working through ideas of what reality is, uh, you know, what identity is, all kind of tied into this this biological, mechanical meshing of things. It's a neat movie. I like it a lot. It's it's unsettling. It's not the crowd pleaser of the Matrix, but uh, it's also really the last film from one of his original ideas he's written and directed. Yeah, I mean that was and, uh, at that point he at that time he had it'd been, it'd been a, a really long time since he'd done any anything uh, you know based on original script. Yeah, I mean, it really the... it is an intensely Cronenbergian oh experience. God, yes. uh, it's just all of his themes unfiltered through any other sensibility, which is great. <laughs> I mean, I, I I like that film a lot, and it came, kind of you know I mean this, that merging of. Uh, 
of the organic and, and the machines. I mean, you know, he's been on that for a long time. Yeah, and I feel like this is around the same time that that was shortly before iPods became a thing. And I I, I thought about the bioports every time I started to sync my iPod. It's mm-hmm. like, I feel like we, the world is kind of catching up with Cronenbergian ideas at that point. I've mostly liked the films he's done since then. I'd really like, I hope we get another Cronenberg, Cronenberg film at some point, though. I don't know that we're ever going to have another Cronenberg film that's as Cronenberg as Existence, though. Because there's just something about, like, in particular, the game controllers in that film. Like, watching people manipulate those, the little pink nipples that that stand in (laughs) for the game controller devices, I think made me more intimately uncomfortable than any sex scene I've ever seen (laughs) in a film. It's, there's just something, I mean, it takes, it takes body horror and technological horror together to kind of a new level. And there's some really fun stuff in that movie, like seeing what it would be like if live people had idle animations the way characters do in video mm-hmm. games. And just you know, a bunch of different things about like how we engage with games and how games engage with the world by turning them into puzzles. But it's it's such a disturbing film. Yeah, the Chinese restaurant scene, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yep. boy. No, it's, it's, it it's, is a special occasion. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny movie i i don't know and i feel like it's it's kind of gotten a little overlooked even now when when you think it would have more of a cult following than it does so existence check it out looming back to your name for a second makoto shinkai had a really interesting career as a director in uh, japanese animation and he started out with films he was making by himself on his computer Mm. and were like full length i mean it was basically pulling a bill plimpton uh, except far more visually beautiful. And he's always had that kind of sun-kissed aesthetic. Uh, Your Name really takes it to a new, new level. Um, I, I, it's a really be- beautiful film, as you say, visually. But he's also always just had, like with films like Voices of a Distant Star and The Place Promised in Our Early Days and Five Centimeters Per Second, he's always had a really good grasp of emotional distance and the kind of melancholy abstract pain that comes with like bridging distances that cannot be bridged emotionally yeah. and physically. I'm a newbie, but I, I definitely want to want to see more. Well, you can find most of his stuff has been translated and imported, so it's not hard. Genevieve, what do you have? Okay, so I haven't actually finished this yet, so it may be poor form recommending <laughs> something that I haven't seen in its entirety, but it's so very much in the next picture show sphere of interest that I can't not talk about Five Came Back, which is a new Netflix mm. series slash movie adapting Mark Harris's 2014 book of the same name which i think some people at this table have read and enjoyed looking at keith yeah highly recommend it yes five came back both the book and adaptation looks at world war ii propaganda through the lenses of five classic directors who contributed documentary films to the effort john ford george stevens john houston william wyler and frank capra who all filmed in combat zones throughout america's involvement in the war Uh, Harris also wrote this documentary, which is narrated by Meryl Streep and includes talking head interviews with five modern day directors, Steven Spielberg, Guillermo del Toro, Francis Ford Coppola, Paul Greengrass and Lawrence Kasdan. As I understand it, the documentary is a pretty straight adaptation of the book, which I guess I should say I have not read, but have heard nothing but good things about. So if you have read Harris's book, there's probably not a lot here that will surprise you in terms of the narrative. But it's such an interesting story of a unique time in film history centered on such important, influential directors that it's worth checking out for anyone interested in film history or World War II or both. 
But what the series offers that the book doesn't, in addition to those talking head interviews, is so much archival footage, particularly combat footage, which is really immediate and compelling. But what I'm enjoying most about Five Came Back at this point, um, I'm about halfway through, is it's, I should say, it's three hour long segments. So it's like a three hour movie, basically. Um, And what I'm enjoying most at this point is the way it draws this context, not just around these five directors as individuals, but Hollywood more generally at this time with these five directors who are just so entrenched and respected in film history, it can kind of be easy to lose sight of what distinguished them as people and not just as artists. And by teasing out each director's relationship to the war and how it came through in their films, this does a really interesting, admirable job, I think, humanizing these icons of early 20th century cinema. Yeah, I think it's worth noting, too, that um, Netflix has included as supplemental material a lot of these documentaries Mm -hmm. that that are talked about in the film. I think uh, I saw some statistic that, like, Netflix currently has something like only 20 films made before Mm -hmm. 1950, and, like, over half of them are in relationship to this this series. Yeah, it'd be great if this was a turning point that they started to, to revisit uh, film history a little bit more. But, no, uh, it's not. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say pretty definitively mm. it's not. But, you know, maybe you'll get some ideas of uh, things to check out uh, that aren't on Netflix that you can seek out. Five came back. It's on Netflix. Check it out. Tasha, what about you? I mean, I'll second the recommendation for your name, uh, which I also haven't finished. I have to say the uh, online screener ceased functioning oh, for God. me before I could quite finish it. Um, I watched that film in 10 minute bursts that it kept breaking down. I mean, anyway, this is very inside baseball, but it's very frustrating when you have a screening service that's really kind of cutting into your enjoyment of a film. Yeah, it's not a great mechanic. At the same time, uh, I feel like I, I got the cliffhanger version of it. The part of it that I was successfully able to watch. I enjoyed so much, not just for the physical beauty of it, but for the really surprising turns that it takes. So I, I just I just want to thumbs up that. But um, my big thought in relationship to Ghost in the Shell, the live action version, was if you would like to see a good movie where Scarlett Johansson <laughs> plays a detached uh, character without a, a wide emotional palette who's dealing with the question of identity and what a body means and in a story that has to do with stolen bodies and uh, and the ownership of existence. Uh, there's a little film called Under the Skin, <laughs> directed by Jonathan Glazier. Scarlett Johansson it keeps playing these characters who are alien and detached. Uh, the character in Lucy, to some degree, Black Widow is a character who, in the many, many MCU movies she's appeared in, is a character who is seething with all of these buried emotions, but presents this very uh, rigid, unexpressive face to the world to whatever degree she can control herself. It's kind of in the same way Tilda Swinton keeps getting uh, you know similar roles where people say, we need something androgynous, uh, yet alien, yet appealing. Let's get Tilda Swinton. It seems like these days people say, we need a, like a kick-ass heroine who cannot show any emotion. Let's get Scarlett Johansson. But Under the Skin just feels like the ultimate expression of that. It is... I've, the the way this film made was so interesting in terms of literally putting Scarlett Johansson in a, a van and having her drive around encountering ordinary people and filming the reactions. Uh, I mean, that's fascinating. But And the source material, uh, which is a novel by the author Mikkel Faber, is really fascinating and goes much, much farther into the alien world uh, than this film does. But Glazer's film just... 
finds a a coolness and a quietness and a stillness to the question of what it would be like to be a literal alien on Earth that is really compelling. And I think Scarlett Johansson is pretty magnificent in it. And I think it deals with a lot of the same issues in a completely, almost a completely silent way, just through performance instead of through monologues or screens full of text or full of really awkward uh, statements about ghosts and shells <laughs> um, under the skin. I recommend and it highly. I'm talking about clarity of vision. I mean, mm. this thing is so brilliantly and precisely designed in every aspect. I mean, that's from one of the films of this century, in yeah, my so view. Great. There's no. There's no no questions. It's great. so great, and she's so great in it. And there was a there was that stretch, like you said, where where under the skin and and her and Lucy, where she was like sort of the embodiment of of characters that sort of question how we define humanity. And, and her, th- this made us in her. I said her, I said her. And this her? this made us be embodiment's the wrong word there, I guess. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, this page has been one trip to the well too 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 many for that particular uh, talent. I don't know. One thing I really love about that performance of Under the Skin, which as you note is largely silent so obviously very dependent on her facial expressions. It's just kind of the curiosity or fascination she imbues that, that character's interactions with without actually stating it in any way, but it gets across what the movie is trying to do just wordlessly just in that performance and kind of her presence more than anything. It also becomes a bit of a body horror film itself mm-hmm. um, in a couple of different ways, neither of which I would want to spoil. So I'm just going to say under the skin, you should see that movie. Yeah. Scott, what do you have? Well, I want to recommend a pair of horror films directed by Osgood Perkins, uh, who happens to be the son of Anthony Perkins, the star of the most famous huh. horror film ever made, uh, or one of the most famous, Psycho. He's directed two films, uh, The Black Coat's Daughter and I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Uh, both harken back to a much older school of horror, uh, films that fit more into the era of Psycho uh, than today, in fact. Though The Black Coat's Daughter, I should say, gets does get quite violent in the third act. Though I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house was Perkins' second feature, it was released first uh, directly to Netflix, and it's my favorite of the two. It's an old-fashioned haunted house movie starring Ruth Wilson, uh, who's terrific, as a live-in nurse who's looking after an elderly woman upstairs. And the film starts by Wilson telling you via voiceover that she's just turned 20 and won't live to be 29. <laughs> so that sets certain expectations about the threat she will encounter in the house. But the film takes its time unspooling a mystery and teasing you with spooky effects before finally bringing the hammer down. So I think that's an, it's an extraordinary film that, again, it's one of those I, I've quibbled in the past and on the show about the way Netflix handles uh, theatrical release releases or, or doesn't handle them in a lot of ways um and uh unfortunately I, i'm the pretty thing that lives in the house is sort of buried even though you know in festivals it was quite well acclaimed uh the black coat's daughter was just recently released by a24 uh both in theaters and on vod so you can watch it there it's a similar slow burn approach to uh two girls played by kiernan shipka from Mad Men and uh, Lucy Boynton, who are stuck alone on a Catholic school campus uh, when their parents don't show up. And then there's a third girl who's played by Emma Roberts, who's hitchhiking her way there for reasons we don't know. Uh, These two subplots come together in fairly unsurprising ways, uh, but it's fascinating to see Perkins' patient, stylish approach to genre take form um he's got definitely a a very stylish director of a of an older school of, of horror and uh, i'd like to see more from him so uh the black coat's daughter and especially i'm the pretty thing that lives in the house you should check him both out mm, 
is, is this where I admit that I really didn't care for I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House? Or no. should I just leave that recommendation stand <laughs> and pretend it. I didn't see it? I don't know. I don't know why, why, I don't know why you wouldn't like that film. It's, it's awesome. Uh, I thought it was awesome until it ended. And uh, it just it seemed to me that it, it kept building up to a moment that never came. I, I felt I, it felt very incomplete to me. Mm. It, it was moody and beautiful and evocative. And then. So you're right with incomplete. it all the way until the until the conclusion. No, uh, there, there came a point uh, sort of midway through where I wanted to move along to the point where something happened. Did you not find the film formally striking and uh, and the work of someone of, uh, of a significant talent? I found the film formally striking. Uh, I wanted him to formally strike in the direction of something happening. <laughs> that makes sense. That's fine. I can see that. Fair enough. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Petra Show. Our next episodes come out May 2nd and 4th. Genevieve, what do we have lined up? The new James Gray film, The Lost City of Z, is about a British explorer who searches the Bolivian jungle for a lost civilization and the archaeological treasures therein. As he makes his way downriver, he encounters hostility from indigenous peoples and from an environment rife with toothsome piranha, disease-carrying mosquitoes, and oppressive heat. Though The Lost City of Z feels at times like a cross between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Agira, the Wrath of God, it grows more contemplative and philosophical as it goes along, particularly in relation to how to think about navigating the natural world. For that reason, we thought it would make an excellent pairing with Burden of Dreams, Les Blank's documentary about the making of Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo. The compare and contrast between Herzog's notoriously grim view of the jungle and the one that emerges in The Lost City of Z should give us plenty to talk about. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Matrix and Ghost in the Shell and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730, even though no one ever does, and it makes us tremendously sad. Or you can email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky and at Vox at the culture section there. Scott. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, as far as writing, I'm doing a lot of recaps these days. I've got a couple at the New York Times on uh, doing Billions and Fargo season three. And then uh, for um, Vulture, I'm writing about the Americans. And you can find my other work also at New York Times, Washington Post, and NPR, uh, Guardian, and uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of uh, Musings, a a blog for oscilloscope pictures. You took over my beat at Vulture, I Scott, did. with I the did. Americans I'm recaps. shame to... <laughs> you're uh, showing me up. I don't think so. I really, really don't think so. I'll do it next year. How's that sound? Uh, <laughs> you can find me at uh, uprocks.com and, and on Twitter at kfips3000. And you can find me writing and editing behind the scenes at theverge.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at Next Picture Pod and via Facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on iTunes already, please consider it. iTunes subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up moves us further up the rankings and helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Colin the Animal Griffith for his assistance in producing the show, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time. Classic.